in the news today, Gardenburger has uh, gone bankrupt. But Sunshine Burger is still going strong. Vegan Radio! Hello and welcome to Vegan Radio. This is our first show ever and we have a special guest today, Howard Lyman. My name is Derek Goodwin. And this is Megan Shackleford. Today we have with us Howard Lyman, a fourth generation family farmer and vegan from Montana. After 20 years of operating a feedlot, he sold his ranch and started working for farmers in financial trouble. He was a lobbyist in Washington and ran for Congress in 1982. He's also the former director of the Beyond Beef campaign and the Humane Society of the United States Eating with Conscience campaign. Past president of both the International Vegetarian Union and Earth Save International, and is currently president of Voice for a Viable Future. Howard travels over 100,000 miles every year as a speaker and lecturer. He lives in Alexandria, Virginia with his wife, Willow Jean, and his cat, Caesar. First question. (laughs) (laughs) Howard, most vegan activists out there, they know your story and the work that you do on behalf of animals. Would you briefly describe your transition from cattle rancher to vegan activists for our listeners who have not heard the story? Well, my transition uh, was a long and uh, rocky road. Uh, being a fourth-generation agriculturist in Montana, I, uh, I had about 7,000 head of cattle, 12,000 acres of crop, and 30 employees. Uh, 1979, I ended up paralyzed from the waist down. Doctor told me I had a tumor on my spinal cord, and if that tumor was on the inside of the cord, I probably had less than one chance in a million I would ever walk again. I will tell you that it really made me stop and think. You know, I became a farmer because of birds, trees, and living soil. I saw the birds die, the trees die, the soil change. And it was not until I was paralyzed that I was willing to admit that I was the problem, not the solution. Laying in the hospital flat on my back, odds of one in a million, uh, never walking again, I had to admit that I'd probably be in a wheelchair. And I wondered... What kind of an invalid was I going to be? Was I going to sit in a wheelchair and feel sorry for myself? Or could I actually make my life amount to something? And if I decided to do that, what would that something be? Well, at that time I thought, why not deal with the loss of the birds, trees, and the soil? Why not uh, work on the environment? So prior to the operation, fully believing that I would never walk again, I committed myself that I would do everything possible to try to get that farm back to what it was when I was a kid. They operated on me for 12 hours. Sure enough, the tumor was on the inside of the cord. They could not get the tumor because it was under the cord. They picked a nerve, hoped the tumor was attached. It was. They took out a tumor the size of my thumb. I actually walked out of the hospital with a one in a million operation. But... I walked out a much different individual, but at that time, I didn't think it had anything to do with animal rights. I didn't think it had anything to do with with, uh, the health. I thought it was all about the environment. So I thought, well, what I'm going to do is become an organic farmer. I went to my banker and I said to my banker, I need to borrow some money. I think we need to uh, work with nature. My banker, he reared back in his chair and said, what in the world does that mean? And I said, I think we need to become organic farmers. He looked at me and laughed. He said, you want me to lend you money 
and you're not going to spend it with my other customers, the chemical dealer, the pharmaceutical dealer, the fertilizer dealer? He said, there will never be a day like that. So, 1983, I sold my farm. But at that time, I started working with other farmers, not to make the mistakes that I made, still thinking that it was all about the environment. But, you know, remember, I was a 300-pound football player, and when I quit playing football, I kept eating the same way, and I was getting well over 300 pounds. My blood pressure was sky high. My cholesterol was over 300 I'd sit down and have lunch, and my nose would bleed. Well, I knew. I knew there was a problem, and the problem was that I wasn't going to live very long if I didn't change my diet. But, you know, I was from Montana. I'd rather be caught riding a stolen horse than admitting somebody I was thinking about becoming a vegetarian. Well, I did the smart thing. I became a closet vegetarian. I gave up all flesh, but uh, the mainstay of my diet was lettuce and dairy products. In a year, I lost some weight. My blood pressure came down slightly. My cholesterol came down slightly. And I thought, wow, if I can do that, being the world's worst vegetarian, just think what I could do if I became vegan and I could spell vegan. Well, (laughs) at that time, I started to understand that there was a lot more in the world than just the environment. And that's when I looked at it and said, you know, here I am. I'm living perfectly healthy. I don't need to eat any animals. I don't like to see them suffer. I don't like to see them die. And then I made the decision, the best decision I ever made in my life. I knew that no animal had to die for me to live. And I became the greatest supporter in the world for animal rights because there's no reason for us to kill 10 billion animals every year here in the United States. We're killing the animals. The animals are killing us. Um, Before we get too far into the uh, politics and the other issues with uh, veganism and animal rights, let's, uh, for our local listeners in Northampton, Massachusetts, um, You told me before that you have some personal history in Northampton. Could you tell us about that? Well, you know, this is a wonderful trip to be able to come to to Massachusetts. My original relative landed in Salem in 1631. He was a stonemason, came from England, and uh, he hooked up with Reverend Hooker, and they moved down, and he and his family became one of the five founding families in Hartford, Connecticut. Now, Richard had three sons. He had my forefather, which was named John, his brother Richard, and Robert. Well, when my original relative in Hartford, Connecticut died in 1640, my, his three sons moved north and became uh, uh, some of the founders of uh, Northampton. They came here in 1653. And the town wasn't founded until 1654. It's a fortunate thing, you know. We happened to to have the directions to this farm. And when my wife and I came, we thought, boy, we need to look up and see where they lived. They lived on Pleasant Street, right off of Maine. Their original homestead where they lived uh, in later years became the Draper Hotel. 
I had no idea in the world where the Draper Hotel was, so I went to the Historical Society. They pulled out the old maps, and guess what? Right up the street, uh, just short of the Haymarket, uh, a little <laughs> ways away from the church, that's where the old Draper Hotel was right on Main. So an amazing thing. They lived on Main, and their farm was on Pleasant Street and ran all of the way to the river. Uh, it was a wonderful thing for me to be able to come and see where my relatives started out. We went to the cemetery, and you can't believe <laughs> how many Lymans are in the cemetery. Yeah, I've seen some of them out there. Oh, I am telling I you, think what, of there, you. There was a flock <laughs> of them. And so I thought, why not go to the phone book and open up the phone book and see how many are there? It looked like the Smiths. There were so <laughs> doggone many Lymans, so... Somebody gave me the phone number of one of them, and I picked it up and called him up, and his name was Henry. And believe it or not, Henry worked for NPR for years. Uh, also wrote poetry. Called him up and said, by the way, uh, you know, I'm a long-lost relative of yours. Uh, have you ever been to the cemetery? Could you tell me where the graves of, of maybe my uh, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather uh, John was buried? And he said, you know, I've been in this town for 25 years, and I've never been to the cemetery. So we went to the Historical Society again, got the directions, went over there, and looked up a whole bunch of them, got to stop and meet with, uh, with my relative uh, Henry and his wife, Noel. I'm telling you what, my trip to Northampton has been one of the most memorable things that I've ever done in my life. And I can see why they came here. The problem is I can't understand for the life of me why they ever left. <laughs> you probably got chased out. Um, yeah, we have a good history of uh, vegetarianism here, too. Uh, Sylvester Graham used to live here. His uh, house has been converted into a restaurant, which isn't vegetarian. But Howard, in 1996, you went on the Oprah Winfrey Show to talk about the possibility of mad cow disease becoming a crisis in the United States. After describing the methods of feeding downer cows back to healthy cows to fatten them up, Oprah made her famous remark, it has just stopped me cold from eating another burger. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association claimed this show cost them $11 million and took you and Oprah to court in the first food disparagement lawsuit filed in the U.S. You and Oprah eventually won the case, but the trial has had the effect of keeping the mainstream corporate media from tackling issues of food safety. Can you comment on this and what it means for us? Well, the first thing that I would say is that every listener out there ought to realize that the First Amendment, the right of free speech, is the absolute foundation of the freedom in America. Here we had a special interest group, the Cattlemen, uh, instituting a law that was called the Food Disparagement Law. And the Food Disparagement Law basically said it's against the law to say something that you know to be false about a perishable commodity. Well, I went on the Oprah show and I told the truth. I basically said we were grinding up cows and feeding them to cows, that we were scraping up roadkill, feeding those to cows, and then we were taking euthanized pets, dogs and cats full of chemicals that were used to kill them, were be rendered down and they were fed back to our pets or our food animals. Every one of those statements is absolutely factually correct. But the cattlemen sued us anyway. And here we ended up in Amarillo, Texas, in the courtroom for six weeks. A jury 
steeped in the cattle culture, found Oprah, Harpo Production, and myself not liable. The cattlemen went wild. They couldn't believe there were 12 people in Texas that would find a vegetarian not liable. They immediately appealed it to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. We're there for a year. We end up with a unanimous panel decision that says Oprah, Harpo Production, and myself are not liable. And then in their statement, their opinion, they said everything Lyman said on the show was true and the truth is not actionable. And on top of that, the cattlemen asked for a rehearing. It was denied. And then they were not allowed to give up. They turned around and sued Oprah, Harpo Production, and myself in state court. Not being from the state of Texas, I had the right to move it back to federal court. I did that six years after we did the show. The judge finally threw out the case with prejudice, which meant they could not refile it. The statute of limitations had run out. Here we were, finding that the right of free speech, it was really not free. It was very expensive. But I believe it was worth every penny of it. Every activist out there, every American out there should have the right to say what they think about what's going on in our world. But the cattlemen, they really knew down in the bottom of their heart that their lawsuit was a fraud. But what they were trying to do was take the commercial media, chill them to the extent that they looked at it and said, do we want to take these these controversial issues and air them and spend a lot of time in court and spend a lot of money defending ourselves? Or should we just go out there and broadcast a bunch of fluff? (laughs) That's why public radio, community radio, is so important. It's where you can actually get the truth, where you can get people that will stand up and say what's on their mind. Give them the right to, to address the issues that need to be said. Remember, I said on the Oprah show, I believe that we had a disease that would make AIDS look like the common cold. I still believe that. I still believe we're magnifying mad cow disease in North America. And if you look at what is happening right now with deer and elk and chronic wasting disease, that disease, another prion disease, is one of the most virulent diseases we've ever seen. It can be passed from one deer to the other by just touching noses or licking a common salt block. You're listening to Vegan Radio on WXOJLP, 103.3 FM, Northampton. When are the American people going to be informed that their health is at risk, that this disease that we're talking about It will incubate anywhere from 10 to 40 years, but it is 100% fatal. On this speaking tour, I happened to be in Syracuse. I was talking to a nurse from a local hospital. She was telling me that every demented patient that comes to the hospital now is put in a separate area. All of the instruments that are used on them have to be disposable. All of the The equipment that those patients touch has to be uh, irradiated. They have to put bleach on it, leave it on for hours before they wipe it down. She said, you know, it's a lot of trouble to go through what we are. But she says somebody must really be worried. 
And I think they should be worried because we're talking about something that is 100% fatal. Something that it takes less than the infectious agent the size of a grain of sand to give somebody a disease that will incubate for years and in the end kill them. And the symptoms look a lot like Alzheimer's. It's an amazing thing. We have four and a half million people in America today that are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. In 1900, you could count all of the cases on one hand. But when they did a study, Pittsburgh Veterans Hospital, people that died with dementia, diagnosed as having Alzheimer's, five and a half of them, percent of them really had the human form of mad cow disease. They replicated that study at Yale University and they found up to 13% of them misdiagnosed really had the human form of mad cow disease, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Now, if those studies are valid, let's round it off for easy calculations. Let's say that 10% of the people in America that are diagnosed with Alzheimer's really have Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, the human form of mad cow disease. That means that we do not have the 300 cases the government says we should have. It means that we have 450,000 cases. I stand by what I said on the Oprah show. I believe we have a disease in this country that will make AIDS look like the common cold, and we are not addressing it. We are still amplifying it. Our government is still in denial. And the American people better take heed and go out and protect themselves, change their diet, and quit eating the products that could be infected to give them a disease that is 100% fatal. Wow. Well, you've <clears throat> answered my next questions almost. Could you talk briefly about Alzheimer's disease? There's some evidence uh, Dr. Michael Greger has been talking about this, that um, Alzheimer's might also be uh, just another form of uh, variant of a prion disease. And also, could you um, talk about uh, the testing methods for um, finding mad cows in America and if they are adequate or not? Well, there's a mouthful. <laughs> you want something brief, you're not going to get it with that question. <laughs> the first thing that I would say is, let's go back to a, a scientist a doctor in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, Dr. Richard Marsh. He had worked at NIH, the Institute of National Health, in uh, Washington, D.C., with the man that won the Nobel Prize, Carlton Geidesek. Then he went back to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and lo and behold, some people informed him that they had a group of mink that were running around, jumping up and down, falling over dead. He went and took a look at them and analyzed it and found that, that those critters were being fed downed cows. Cows that had unexpectedly died were collected and used for mink feed. He looked at it and he said, that looks a lot like a, a prion disease. And so he took some of the material out of the brain of the mink, put it in the brain of a couple of Holstein calves, and uh, in a year and a half, they did not just go wild. They just fell over dead. He took it out of the brain, put it under the microscope, and sure enough, they had a spongiform disease. And Dr. Richard Marsh looked at it and said, wow, in England, they may have the mad cow variety, 
Maybe we have the downer cow variety. Maybe we have as much as a thousand different varieties. You know, we have uh, a spongiform disease in sheep that is called scrapie, a spongiform disease in deer and elk that's called chronic wasting disease, a spongiform disease in humans that's called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, a spongiform disease in cattle that is called, you know, bovine spongiform encephalopathy or mad cow disease. But maybe what we need to do is stop and look at it. Maybe Dr. Michael Grieger is exactly right. Maybe what we're looking at is, is the prion, an abnormal protein, something much different than what we've ever seen before. Not a bacteria, not a virus, a protein, and a protein is not alive. How do you go and kill something that was never alive? How does something that is not alive transmit a signal from, from a abnormal protein turning a normal protein abnormal? And that's what's happening. We're finding an abnormal protein one way or another, sends a signal to a normal protein and makes it abnormal, and that eats the hole in the brain. That's why it takes so long for it to do it. But maybe Dr. Richard Marsh is also correct. Maybe we have a thousand different varieties. Maybe Alzheimer's really is a, another form of the prion disease. Remember, it started, uh, was first identified in 1900 uh, by Dr. Alzheimer. And I mean, it was so rare that, that they gave the disease his name. And two of his cohorts that worked with him were Dr. Jakob and Dr. Kurtzfeld. And they're the ones that found the disease in humans. So I would say right now that I would uh, go along with Dr. Michael Grieger. I think there's a high likelihood that Alzheimer's, where we have four and a half million uh, people in America today diagnosed with it, uh, they say by 2050 that number will increase to over 12 million. How in the world can that happen? if it is not associated with something that we are doing in our diet or our environment. Uh, there's a man in Canada, a doctor, that wrote a book that was called Dying for a Hamburger. He went and researched the medical history all the way back to Rome. He was looking for recorded evidence of people with dementia. He did not find it even though they had people that were 70, 80, 90 years old, never were they talking about dementia until we ended up in a society where we started eating a whole lot more animals. So I think the listeners out there should understand right now that we have a whole new game. The government is telling you right now, don't worry, but you should worry. We have 100,000 cows a year, fine at night, dead in the morning. These are not cows that are sick. These are not cows that are injured. These are cows that appear perfectly healthy the last time somebody sees them, and then they're dead. But our government says, hey, we're on top of this. We're testing. We have 100 million head of cattle in the U.S. herd. About 35 million are slaughtered every year. The number we're testing is minuscule at best. And the tests they're using, I believe our government has a policy of don't look, don't find. 
the last mad cow that was confirmed in the United States was not confirmed because the United States Department of Agriculture was on top of the issue. They tested the cow. She tested positive. They tested her again, tested positive again. Well, then they took it to what they called the, the uh, gold standard test, and luckily she was negative. So they put it on the shelf and said, boy, aren't we a sweet group of folks. We protected the American people. A retired United States vet went and saw the legal arm of USDA and said, I think, I think they are covering this up. The head of the legal department, unknowing to the Secretary of Agriculture, ordered that sample sent to England. Sure enough, when they actually did the correct test, that animal was positive for mad cow disease. Japan, they test every animal that goes to slaughter in Japan. They will not take our meat because they don't believe that we are properly testing. They came over, looked at our test, and they said, you know, in Japan, we have had 20 animals that have tested positive for mad cow disease. Our feeding practices are pristine compared to yours. And the tests you're using in the United States, had we used that in Japan, half of the animals we found to be positive would have turned up negative. They still do not want to touch our meat with a 10-foot pole, Mm -hmm. and I can sure understand that because I still believe that our government policy is don't look, don't find. Sounds like a lot of our government policies. What's the next question, Ms. Shackelford? Howard, I want to move on. She's just thinking about what she doesn't want to have for lunch. (laughs) I want to move on um, towards nutrition. Scientific studies that aren't sponsored by the meat and dairy industries consistently point towards the health benefits of a plant-based diet and the health disasters of a diet centered on animal proteins. Why is it that the medical establishment and the governmental agencies that are supposed to be looking out for us just refuse to recommend that Americans move towards a plant-based vegan diet. Well, the thing you first have to understand is we have the best government that money can buy. And there is no doubt about it. I spent five years working in Washington, D.C. I saw an area where they had the golden rule. Them that got the gold were making the rules. Uh, The government agencies are absolutely overrun with people that come from industry, spend some time in the federal government, and then go back to very lucrative jobs in the industry, and they are the ones that are setting up the rules. They are the ones that are coming up with the regulations. So when we look at the studies out there that overwhelmingly show that a plant-based diet is the way to go, if an American citizen wants to move to an area where they can live anywhere from 7 to 18 years longer uh, by eating a plant-based diet, they almost have to do it on their own. Look at the book that was written by Dr. T. Colin Campbell, uh, a farm boy that went to Cornell, got his Ph.D., and became one of the leading nutritionists in the world. 
He went and did the largest dietary study that has ever been done in the world, which the New York Times called the Grand Prix of all dietary studies. He wrote a book called The China Project, and in that book he shows that his research, the largest study in the history of the world, shows that our health problems, heart disease in the United States, one out of every two Americans dying are dying of heart disease. One out of every three Americans will have cancer. One out of four will die of cancer. Two out of every three Americans are overweight or obese. Uh, diabetes is growing astronomically, and the list goes on and on. Well, Dr. Colin Campbell's study showed that basically the thing that was implicated in every one of those health problems happened to be animal protein. If you look at the actual, unbiased, scientific data, peer-reviewed, the best that has ever been done in the world, it basically says the proper amount of animal products should be in your diet is zero. If you want to live longer, healthier, get the animal protein out of your diet. And if you don't do that, you are going to end up, in my opinion, with a premature death. Um, you have a book out called uh, No More Bullet, and it's um, half focused on the things we've been talking about here and um, about half uh, recipes from a wide variety of sources that are great vegan recipes. Do you want to plug your book a little? You better believe it. Uh, <laughs> I wrote No More Bullet because... The first thing is people love good news about their bad habits. We have a whole lot of diets out there that are just atrocious. Uh, we actually do an analysis of some of those diets like the Atkins diet, the South Beach diet, uh, and bring in the reality of what the studies say. Uh, studies like uh, T. Colin Campbell's book, The China Study, those that are telling us the truth and if you're going to say to somebody, you ought to change your diet, first thing they're going to say to you is, well, what do I eat now? So we included over 100 vegan recipes from the best chefs in North America. And then what we did is we took a chapter, and we wrote a chapter to vegetarians. And we basically said to them, you know, you should not consider to yourself as righteous as what you attempt to because there are a lot of lousy vegetarian diets. We talk about the difference between a good vegetarian diet and a bad one. And then we did the same thing for those people that are on a vegan diet, because there are a lot of lousy vegan <laughs> diets. We want people to understand that if you're going to go to a plant-based diet, you want to make sure that you eat it correctly. When we did that, then we sat down and we wrote an entire chapter, a letter to the carnivores. And we laid out for the carnivores, the people that are eating meat. And remember, all true carnivores have two things in common. Claws and teeth for ripping and tearing. If people believe that they are a true carnivore, if they can jump on the back of the cow, stick in their claws, and take a bite out of the rump, I will buy into the idea that they are true carnivores. <laughs> but 
I have failed to see anyone be able to do that yet. So we wrote the letter to the carnivores and we said, here's the future that is uh, pending for you if you don't change the way you live. And remember, half of Americans are dying of heart disease, 25% are dying of cancer, obesity is growing astronomically, the list goes on and on. So what we did in the book of No More Bull is we basically said, here's a primer, all in one book. What are the problems? What about the phony diets? What's happening to the people that have bad vegetarian and vegan diets? What's going to happen to the carnivores? And then we listed over 100 good vegan diets from some of the best chefs in North America. It's a, uh, a wonderful primer for anybody. I would recommend you go to uh, my website, madcowboy.com. You can find it there. You can review it, take a look, consider buying it. It will help you live healthier and longer. We're broadcasting from a liberal area in a liberal state, and many of our listeners are environmental and political activists. While there are many vegetarians and some vegans in the area, I usually find that many of my friends and acquaintances who are otherwise very environmentally and politically aware, they just can't seem to make the connection as to how a diet that includes animal products contributes to environmental damage, human suffering, and political corruption. What would you say to people who are awakened in so many other ways, but they just have this blind spot in their compassion? Well, the first thing I would say that it's impossible to be an environmentalist and not be a vegetarian. If you actually look at it, the United States of America, we, being here less than 400 years, we have lost almost 75% of our topsoil. 80% of all of the grain that's grown in America today is stuffed down the throat of an animal. When we look at the amount of chemicals that are used in the production of those crops to feed those animals, it is astronomic. The list goes on and on, no matter how you want to cut it. I thought the most telling thing that I ever read is when they talked about a church that was built in 1850 in Iowa. That church has been in continual use for 155 years. In 1850, when the church was started, all of the ground around the church was farmed. Today, all of the ground around the church is still farmed. The interesting thing is, in 1850, all of the land was level. Today, the church fits 10 feet higher than all of the fields around it. They have lost 10 feet of topsoil in 155 years. Now, nobody walked into church and said, hey, Luke, look, we're an eighth of an inch lower this year than we were last year. But when you look at the difference in the pictures that were taken of that church in 1850, and you look at a picture taken of it today and see that we have lost 10 feet of topsoil, you understand the problems associated with growing crops to feed them to animals. Every one of the listeners that are out there today understand that you go to the gas station and we have gas over $3 a gallon. Would not surprise me this time next year that it could be over $6 a gallon. And you ask yourself, what could we do about that? Well, the first thing that I would recommend is 
Let's do some conservation. Next thing, let's talk about the CAFE standards, the, the gallons or the miles per gallon of the vehicles that are being produced and sold to Americans. And the third thing, would it not make a lot more sense if we would take those crops that we are growing in America and we would use them for ethanol? Do you realize that we could lessen our need for importing foreign oil? if we just did those three things. So when I say to our, our, our friends out there that consider themselves as uh, environmentalists, I would say you are a fictitious environmentalist because if you don't understand how diet fits into the total picture, you're smoking the number one crop out of California. <laughs> <laughs> You also have an organization called Voice for a Viable Future. Uh, do you want to tell us about that? I started uh, the organization Voice for a Viable Future for a very specific reason. I believe that, that the Internet is going to be the way that we're going to communicate with activists in the future. I think that we really need some facts. So on uh, Voice for a Viable Future website, madcowboy.com, we have hundreds of pages of the factual issues, whether we're talking about mad cow disease or water or animals, you name it. Not only do we list snippets of, of the issues that include the facts, we list where they came from so that a person can go and look up the entire study without taking our word for what it says. We want them to be able to go to the abstract that it came from, read it in total, because I feel that the future of a good activist community is a well-informed community. That website for use in an activist is absolutely free. It is as up-to-date as we can do it with the resources that we have. And so, Voice for a Viable Future does not have members. We do not go out and recruit people we actually have a, a free electronic newsletter, but everything we do, we do to educate the activists because I truly believe if there is to be a future for our children and grandchildren, we are going to have to get on top of these issues in this generation. And to do that, we need good, clear facts. I believe that website does that. I also believe this radio station does that, and I would highly recommend every listener out there to thank the Lord that you have the opportunity to listen to these unfiltered words so you can make your own decision. Support community radio. Realize it's a voice that may save your life. Here, here. And for those of you who don't know, we are Vegan Radio. We're broadcasting on WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. And we're also on the internet at veganradio.com. Vegan Radio, because the animals are listening to Howard, if you could just get one point across to our listeners today, what would you want it to be? If I could only say one thing to the listeners out there, I would say that your future is in your own hands. You are the one 
that have the capability right now of making a phenomenal change. It's not your job to go out and change the world, but it is your job to save yourself. Every one of your actions influences what happens in the future. Every time you pull out your wallet, every time you spend a dollar, you're voting on the future. Do you think about what you're buying? Do you think about the impact? Do you realize that you may be putting your money in the till of somebody that you absolutely, totally uh, oppose? So I would say the one thing, educate yourself. Start walking your talk. And if you do that, if you start listening to the facts, you start doing those things that you profess to believe in, and enough of us do that, I guarantee you, in this generation, the majority of Americans will be eating plants and not animals. The majority of Americans will be recycling. The majority of Americans will be out there uh, doing those things in conservation that makes sense, and guess what? When that happens, when the people lead, the politicians will follow. All right. Thank you, Howard. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Howard. You're very welcome, and uh, all I can say is I feel truly honored to be able to come and do the initial uh, vegan radio show, and I wish you all of the best in the future, and I guarantee you I will come back. We're going to hold you to that, and we're going to have a great uh, radio station with you as our first guest. WXOJLP. Wow, that was a really amazing interview with Howard Lyman. Very thought-provoking. Now, Lyman, that's, uh, if I got this right, now he, he's the guy who invented Sprite. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got a lot to say about the issue, and uh, you can see why uh, he was so convincing for Oprah. What is Howard doing today? He's on tour right now with his book, No Bull. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what's coming up next, Megan? Up next is... The Naked News. The Naked News? News in the Buff, Scott. Our pants are off, and it's time for The Naked News. What's the story, guys? Oh, well, there's this uh, non-human molecule found in red meat, and it uh, it seems it makes its way into the human system when eaten, amazingly enough, and seems to build up especially in tumors, according to U.S. researchers' report. It's not a tumor. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
A compound called sialic acid is found on the surfaces of animal cells, but it's not found in people, even though we are animals. And that might be one reason why animal-to-human organ and tissue transplants do not work well. Animals have a version called NEU5GC, while humans carry NEU5AC. Ah, it's like electricity. ACGC. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) But researchers at the University of California, San Diego, found it does show up in the human body and showed it can be absorbed from eating red meat and milk. They also showed that the body produces an immune response against the molecule. Of course, they say, there are already existing recommendations that people should not consume too much food containing saturated fats such as dairy products and red meat. Um, but the highest amount of NEU5GC was found in lamb, pork, and beef, the so-called red meat. Levels were very low to undetectable in vegetables. The researcher Varkey, who's not a vegetarian, noted that many studies have linked a diet rich in meat and milk with cancer, heart disease, and other diseases. These uh, diseases of autoimmune disorders occur when the body mistakenly attacks healthy tissue and include type 1 or juvenile diabetes and some types of arthritis. Well, it's like the more you know, the worse it seems, you know? Uh, What else is going on in the news? Uh, here's a story from Beijing and Xinhua news agencies in China. Apparently China has their very own grizzly man, Derek. Well, he's not quite a grizzly man. He's a black bear man, but we'll let that one slide. <laughs> a Chinese man who raised bears to tap them for their bile, apparently prizes a traditional medicine in Asia, has been killed and eaten by his very own animals. Six black bears attacked their keeper, Han Shijian, while he was cleaning their pen in the northeastern province of Jilin. The report says, The ill-fated man died on the spot and it was eaten up by ferocious bears. How romantic. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I feel very bare right now, actually. The tapping of bile is a long-standing traditional process. Bile is extracted through surgically implanted catheters in the bear's gallbladder or by a, quote, free-dripping technique by which bile drips out through holes opened in the animal's abdomens. I can't imagine, Derek, why the bears would have attacked him. Uh, I don't know. I think uh, he must not have uh, been keeping up with the feeding schedule. (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, 200 farms in China keep about 7,000 bears to tap their bile, which according to traditional Chinese medicine can cure fever, liver illness, and sore eyes. Bear farming was far more widespread before this brand of cruelty came to light, and Beijing introduced regulations to control the industry in 1993. Animal welfare groups have called on China to completely ban bear farming, arguing that traditional herbal medicines can serve the same purposes as bear bile. Nice. (laughs) Police sent to the scene of the killing injected one of the bears with tranquilizers, but, quote, failed to tame the mad animal. Maybe some nuts and berries would have been a better... Distraction. And speaking of nuts, man, you're looking. <laughs> yeah, now the reason we bring up this story is not because of this guy getting killed by bears or the obviously barbaric practice of tapping bear bile, but the fact that the police were permitted to throw meat into the bear's pen. Yes, that's not very vegan. No. We, uh, and this is what we're protesting this week. Yes. The Bear Facts, The Turgid Truth. Naked News, 
only on Vegan Radio. You're listening to Vegan Radio on WXOJLP, 103.3 FM, Northampton. And in beaver news, the Amherst Board of Health has decided to allow the inhumane trapping of beavers in the Cherry Hill Golf Course and the Plum Creek Pomeroy Court areas, citing problems that have emerged as a result of beaver overpopulation. Those little beavers are always, uh, you know... Well, anyway, the traps that will be used are body-gripping snares to catch the beaver underwater and hold it there until it drowns, which for a beaver can take as long as 15 to 20 minutes. Opponents of the measure call this approach repellent, particularly given that there are plenty of alternative ways to drain areas flooded by beavers and point out that the so-called county bear traps are cruel and cause the animals unnecessary pain and suffering. Shame on Amherst. Yeah, Amherst. Shame on you. You rotten, stinking... In uh, vegan-friendly Portland, Oregon, we have a story. Garden Burger Incorporated, the company credited with taking veggie burgers into the mainstream, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. In a statement given last week, company officials announced that Garden Burger would stay in business but would become privately held. Officials declined to name the new owner, saying details of the proposed reorganization would be announced next week. Who will own the new Garden Burger? <laughs> PepsiCo? Monsanto? The move comes just two years after the company relocated its manufacturing hub to Clearfield, Utah, and its headquarters to California. All right. Ed makes me feel uh, Derek's going out to uh, polish his wit. Uh, and uh, while he's out, we're going to continue this news debacle with our next story. If you're a TV watcher like many of us, you're at least vaguely aware that the Australian 80s band In Excess, creators of such perennial 80s hits as The Devil Inside, New Sensation, Never Tear Us Apart, a song about wolves. And the deeply moving Suicide Blonde. My personal favorite. Mm, mine too. As a new lead singer, 31-year-old Canadian bohunk J.D. Fortune. Ow! As winner of the reality TV show Rockstar In Excess, J.D. is now frontman for the band that had heavy hits in the 80s from their 1985 release Listen Like Thieves. And uh, one or two others, I, th- I thought. But, uh, J.D. was chosen ahead of 15 other rockers trying out for the position of lead singer of the aging band. The show's finale pitched finalists Mig Ayesa, Marty Casey, and J.D. against one another in an all-out blood fest for the coveted golden ring. J.D. blew away the crowd and the aging members of In Excess with his rendition of the Rolling Stones' You Can't Always Get What You Want. But if you try sometimes, you might get what you need. In Excess has been without a permanent lead singer since their frontman, Michael Hutchins, was found hanged in a hotel room in November of 1997. I guess the band didn't want to have a long-necked singer. <laughs> J.D., <laughs> Jason Dean Fortune, good name for a sausage, was born in Mississauga, Ontario, and lived in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia before moving back to Toronto in 1989. J.D. is a strict vegetarian, and he's also a martial arts instructor who, as a struggling musician, has had to pay his way by working as an Elvis impersonator. But how many of us haven't done that? JD believes he has the discipline and the chops to become the new lead singer for In Excess, a band of which he has always been a diehard fan. 
No pun intended. <laughs> JD will be getting right to work. In Excess is planning to release a new album already titled Switch. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> on November 29th. And a worldwide whirlwind rock tour will follow in January of 2006. In Excess is reportedly already stocking up on Geritol for the tour. Past weekend, Vegan Radio went on the road to the Boston Vegetarian Food Fest. We expected to find lots of new and amazing vegetarian products to try out, but we were also struck by the surprising number of animal rescue organizations. In particular, this week we want to focus on one important one. Gray 2K is an organization dedicated to eliminating greyhound racing throughout the U.S. They've mounted a petition drive, and they need to gather at least 66,000 signatures to get an initiative on the Massachusetts ballot for 2006. In the year 2000, Massachusetts voters rejected a similar ballot initiative in a very close vote. This is an issue we take very seriously here at Vegan Radio, and we hope history will not repeat itself in 2006. Roving correspondent Derek Goodwin spoke to Gray 2K, and here now is his report. This is Derek Goodwin for Vegan Radio. We're here at the Boston Vegetarian Food Fest and at the Great 2K booth. And uh, what is your name? My name is Christine Dorchak. Christine, could you tell us a little about uh, Great 2K and what you're doing over here? Well, Great 2K USA is a national organization working to end dog racing nationwide. In Massachusetts, we're participating in the campaign to pass the Dog Protection Act into law. We're here today gathering signatures from thousands of people who want to see the Dog Protection Act go before voters next year. Great. How many signatures do you have and how many do you have to go? We probably have half of what we need, so we've got a long way to go and only four more weeks to finish our task. But once we're on the ballot, we will ask voters to phase out greyhound racing and end this cruel industry. Now this uh, came up about four years ago, or was there another uh, referendum that didn't pass with the voters? Is that true? Question three was brought before voters in 2000, and unfortunately, the margin of loss was 51-49. So close. So do you have more hope for this time? Do you think people are more educated? Is there any um, hope that this time it'll work out better? When voters learn what is happening to greyhounds at Wonderland and Raynham Taunton Greyhound Parks, they will support the Dog Protection Act. Currently, state records show that nearly 500 dogs have been seriously injured while racing at these two tracks just in the last three calendar years. Dogs who suffered cardiac arrest, broken necks, broken bones, severed tails. This is not a fun sport for greyhounds in Massachusetts. We're broadcasting live out of uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. Is there anywhere in our area that people can go to sign petitions or... Is there any other way that they can sign the petition? You need to sign a petition in person. It's a quasi-legal document and can't be signed online. If you'd like to join the team as a volunteer or you'd like a petition to be sent to you to sign, you can call my office. Ask for Christine at 617-666-3526. Great, and you can also get that information at veganradio.com. We'll have it online for you. Any other thing you'd like to say? I would just encourage Massachusetts voters who care about animals to sign this petition and then please go to the polls in November 2006 so that we can end greyhound racing in Massachusetts. Excellent. I'm going to sign it right now. Great story, Derek. 
Now, I just want to urge all our listeners out there to get their signature on the initiative. To find out more information, go to grade2kusa.org. And we'll have that uh, same link posted on veganradio.com. The bare facts, the turgid truth. Naked news, only on Vegan Radio. tofu this has been Derek Edwin and I'm Megan Shackleford <laughs> thanks for tuning in to our amazing premiere we've got a lot more exciting stuff planned for future shows oh. and we know you're gonna dig it we'll be back in two weeks with another exciting episode of Vegan Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts by Veganica Productions. Copyright 2005. Thanks to Scott Latane for taking the helm as producer and director of our premiere show on Vegan Radio. Vegan Radio.